going to invite Tammy uh, Rodman to come up, and she's going to be our MC for tonight. Uh, she's a good friend of mine and uh, doing amazing work with both Durham Cares and Shiloh Covenant Church, um, and, and she's going she's gonna to help our conversation tonight. So come on up, Tammy. Good evening, everyone. All right, I'm excited to be here this evening. Um, I think we're going to have a wonderful time. I've met Jonathan uh, briefly, and I've already discerned a wonderful spirit. So I want you all to have your ears on, have your spirits open. I want you to have your spiritual ears and eyes um, prepared. To receive, because I truly believe that God is going to reveal some things this evening, uh, things that will hopefully, prayerfully transform you. Uh, I asked, um, let me take this, uh, hopefully I'll do this. That's a little bit better. Um, you know, I was thinking... Uh, <laughs> what to say. Uh, I'm just going to keep it real, okay? Because uh, you all know me. Some of you know me already. <laughs> Those that don't, you will. Um, I purchased the book, and I said, well, let me, you know, let me read up on this. And I shared with Jonathan, I read the forward, and I read the first chapter, and I had to get up. And when I said I had to get up, something rose up in my spirit. And I, I had to walk. I'm from the, I'm from the Baptist church, okay? Um, I was uh, enveloped by Pentecostals, so I got a little bit of all of that. And so the spirit had me walking around the house. Ah, it was powerful, powerful. I said, now, Lord, this is just the first chapter. How are we going to do this? Um, is, all I can say is that this book is God-inspired. The Lord has used Jonathan in a magnificent way. If you have not read it yet, I'm going already into the cell pitch. If you have not read it yet, please, please, after you leave here today, go get a copy. You owe it to yourself to read it, study it, and continue to hear what God is saying. Because as I think uh, one of the people who acknowledged, uh, did an acknowledgement in the book said that we have a moral prophet and a spiritual surgeon before us today. That's powerful. Sit on that for just a second. We have a moral prophet and a spiritual surgeon before us. Every now and then, God will send a prophet to help us to see that we may be on the wrong road, that we're traveling a way that we shouldn't be traveling, or we're getting ready to go down a road that we shouldn't go down. And I thank God for being 
the faithful God that he is that does that. So we have a prophet before us, not in the sense of maybe what some of you all have seen on TV as prophets and prophetess, <laughs> but a true prophet who takes the word of God, who looks at what God is truly saying, looks at the times, and speaks what God is speaking to them and is willing to bear his soul before us so that we get it right because that's what God wants us to do. So I'm going to stop preaching because I tell you that preaching spirit, this kind of thing that makes that preaching spirit rise up. And I'm going to invite Jonathan to come up here and bless us. I'm going to get out of the way and let God do what God is doing. (laughs) Well, it's good to be together. Let's just sit down together. I was telling Tammy here that I'm delighted to have this conversation. And uh, I think we'll, we'll just have a conversation and then invite everybody into it, if that's all right. Um, but as you were just talking there about how the spirit moves, um, one of the things I've learned in the church is that um, in some ways we have to open ourselves to the spirit and uh, there, are, there are songs that open us up. Um, and w- there's a chapter in the book towards the end where I actually uh, introduced this song that I've learned uh, over at the St. John's Baptist Church. Maybe we could just sing that song as a way of uh, preparing ourselves for conversation. I think it's the creed of the uh, liberative black church tradition in America. Um, You know, lots of churches have fancy creeds. Sometimes, I don't see it in here, but sometimes, you know, churches put the creed up on the wall or, you know, people sign it as a covenant or something. But... um, but this is a very simple creed, and it's been passed down in song. You can learn the lines quickly. The first verse is, I will trust in the Lord until I die. The second line is, I'm going to stay on the battlefield until I die. Because if you trust this Lord, you're going you're gonna to be engaged in a struggle, this song says. Uh, but we don't fight like other people fight. So the last line is, I'm going to treat everybody right until I die. So let's let's sing it together. You'll pick up the tune. It goes, I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord till I Trust in the 
Talk. Thank you for reading the book. You said you, you you said some yeah. kind words about it, but um. Yeah, let me let me pull out my highlights. All right. All right. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you started out in the first chapter with the scenario of the beehive mm -hmm. and the Christmas on the plantation. Yeah. Just share that with us. Go into that a little bit for me as to, um, I, you say pretty clearly in here what you were feeling, but just share that moment because I think it's important yeah. to yeah, hear that story. Yeah, well, you know, I told a particular story that uh, uh, takes you as a reader that took me as a person living it to, you know, uh, uh, a certain feeling, um, but I don't want to say that by it being a particular story that it's unique, mm -hmm. right? So this is a kind of glimpse into one of the things that I've come to realize about white evangelicalism in uh, in America, and in the, in particular in this context, right? Uh, I mean, we're in Durham. I wrote this book from Durham, and uh, a, lot, a lot of times I think about how, you know, what I think one of the things we have to grapple with just in terms of being Christian in this place is that we're living in the, we're living in the Carolina Delta here, you know, the rivers that run down to Wilmington and, and from through Virginia down to Norfolk, uh, those, those rivers created the fertile land where the tobacco and cotton and rice plantations, if you're going down to Charleston, um, were started in this country. And in those spaces, uh, the cruel institution of race-based chattel slavery was, was born. And the legal systems that made that possible were instituted by the colonial legislatures of Virginia first and then other places. So in a lot of ways, if we're, if we're dealing with the history of race in America, you're, you are right in the heart of where that was born. I mean, a lot of times when we think about the Civil War and the Mississippi Delta and think about how, you know, by the time we got to the Civil War, the center of uh, enslavement had moved to the Deep South, but it began right here. And um, Tammy was just telling me she takes groups with the pilgrimage program here in Durham over to Stagville, this uh, uh, kind of, you know, historic site we now have. But at the end of the Civil War, it was the largest plantation in North Carolina, uh, owned by the Cameron family. And the Cameron family uh, um, had, for two generations by that time, run the North Carolina bank um, and uh, had started, you know, the University of North Carolina and other uh, institutions around here. So... In a lot of ways, that sort of every everything that's part of our kind of systemic life grew out of this story. And the thing that um, that I think is crucial for us to understand as people of faith is that everyone who was building that system, everyone who represented it, 
everyone who uh, made it their life's work to make that system work and work efficiently understood themselves to be Christian, right? So, um, you know, uh, our brother down in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, who just uh, opened this really important memorial and museum, his name is Brian Stevenson. He's president of the Equal Justice Initiative. He often says that uh, slavery didn't go away in America. Slavery evolved, right? The, the system that was built um, on the backs of enslaved Africans here in eastern North Carolina and eastern Virginia and in northeast South Carolina, that system grew to become the American economy. And do you know what we call it today? We call it the global economy. Right? Plantation capitalism didn't go away. Plantation capitalism went global. And the, um, the world that we live in is deeply shaped by the practices that developed on this land, this place where we are. And uh, I told this story to open the book because it occurred to me as I went downtown to the DPAC at the invitation of a friend of mine who had just gotten out of jail. Now think about this. You know, the jail is right across the street from the DPAC. And uh, uh, I thought about this as that, you know, beautiful building with all of its glass windows went up. That you can literally look out of the windows of the jail and see, you know, the folks coming in and out of the shows there on the weekend. And in so many ways, it's a picture of the two Durhams that exist, right? Uh, a, a Durham where, um, I don't know if you've been in our jail, but it's overwhelmingly black and Latino folks, overwhelmingly poor folks who are locked up in our jail. Uh, we have a significant movement right now to, uh, you know, end cash bail. Uh, a lot of the reason people end up staying, I mean, all, you know, all kinds of people break the law, not only in Durham, but everywhere. I mean, this is part of the human condition. But, um, but the people who end up staying in jail are the people who don't have the money to get out of jail. Uh, that, that's kind of how this system works. So, um, so in a place where people were enslaved because of the color of their skin, there's still a, a stark divide in terms of economics, in terms of opportunity, in terms of the way people are treated by the systems. And in so many ways, the Christianity that justified that in the mid-19th century when it was challenged by abolitionists and others who, 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 who really saw that there was a moral problem with enslaving other people, um, that faith, like the, uh, like the practices of the plantation economy, that faith evolved, right? So in so many ways, I wanted to open with that story because um, in, in a visceral way, I experienced there how so many people who preach Jesus and who I th genuinely, you know, deep in their heart, they do believe that Jesus is the answer and Jesus is the only thing that can change the world. In so many ways, that faith can easily be caught up in and passing on the practices of white supremacy. And, um, and it, it, in that particular case... Um, uh, I was sitting there with a young uh, African-American man who I've known since he was a boy who grew up in the neighborhood where we live. And, um, and literally, when the preacher started preaching, he got up and ran out of the building. And it was, uh, for me, it was a 
powerful experience of realizing, like, I understood that that preacher couldn't imagine why that young man had to leave. And, and he couldn't, the young man, couldn't imagine how that guy thought what he was saying was good news for him. And that divide, that divide that was there in that room is in so many ways, I think, the divide that we're grappling with in the church right now. And when I, when I think about the, the deep need to unlearn the habits of slaveholder religion, it's just that, that story kind of encapsulated that for me. So that's a long-winded way of saying why I told that story, but thanks for asking. Um, and that leads to the next question of uh, you, you dealt with the gospel being torn in two. Um, because I think as we were sharing a little bit before we started, um, I, or it might have been Chris and I, uh, I was seeing that, you know, um, growing up and, and being in the church myself, um, I always felt like something was off. Even growing up in the black church, um, just something was off. There was a difference in the Jesus that I felt, and even as I grew up and, and, and have a little age on me now, always realized that something between the Jesus that I know for myself and the Jesus that I see being displayed by people who call themselves Christians it was different. Yeah, so when I began to, so I grew up in the church. I grew up mm -hmm. in the very white Southern Baptist mm -hmm. Church out in rural North Carolina. And um, um, I grew up in the heyday of the moral majority movement. So uh, as a young person, I was making a connection between my faith and politics. And that was a very conservative politics in that context. So I ended up as a teenager going to Washington, D.C., and paging for Senator Strom Thurmond, mm -hmm. not even fully realizing what Strom Thurmond's mm -hmm. history was, but you know he was the senior most uh, senator at the time, and um, invited me to, to be a page. And when I got there, I began to say, "Well, well, wait a second. Like, there's this between what I read in the Bible, you know, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself,' when Jesus says, you know, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, when Jesus says, whatsoever you did unto the least of these, you did it unto me.' But between that." And what was actually like being hashed out in Jesus' name in D.C., there was this huge divide. Let's just call it that, a huge divide. And um, I didn't understand why that was. Or I, I also didn't understand, like, what could the alternative be? But um, I came back to North Carolina, and I met Reverend William Barber, who began to kind of mentor me and take me under his wing in terms of uh, learning this liberative black church tradition that I, I didn't even know it existed. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, in so many ways, it's what has kept America alive. In so many ways, it's what, um, it's what everybody knows in their soul is true, right? That's why, when, that's why it didn't matter if she was singing a church song or if she was singing a pop song. If people heard Aretha Franklin, you know, I mean, we, just, we just remembered her uh, a couple weeks ago when she died. But pe people have heard this truth. Right. In, in so many ways, it's the truth that's uh, at the heart of what's um, good about this country. And it's at the heart of what has like kept our democracy alive. I mean, white supremacy is so anti-democratic. I think the whole thing would have just burned up <laughs> if it hadn't been for black folks who were willing to say, um, 
we believe this can be reconstructed. Right? That's what reconstruction was. Black folks who had been enslaved within this system saying, wait a second, you did at least aspire to a more perfect union. You did at least say on paper that all people are created equal, right? So, so, so there's this, uh, there's something there. There's another way of being Christian. And so I was trying to understand that. And so I, I began to go back and look at um, in the 19th century, right? As black and white folks were challenging this slaveholder religion that, that in God's name justified, you know, what was happening to other people, the enslavement of other people. Um, and, you know, and I mean, in some ways, that's too cold a description, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about ripping people away from their homes. We're talking about regularly separating families. I mean, when we're horrified by what we see on the television, you know, these babies that are crying and won't even go back to their parents right now. This is on TV. Yeah. But when you see that, you've got to understand there's a long history of that in this country, right? Mm -hmm. And that it was all wrapped up in this economy that said some people could be property and could be sold and torn away and sent somewhere else and used and abused, right? Work from can't to can't, they say. You know, can't see in the morning because can't see at night. Uh, uh, raped, beaten, whipped. All of this has been the experience of people. And cruel and vicious as it is, when you take any time to pay attention to what it actually meant for real people, you have to also say it was defended by the church, right? When a moral movement arose, I mean, the abolition movement was a moral movement. People said there's something wrong about this. There were preachers and theology professors who taught at, you know, respectable seminaries like the one we have here in this town and others. Um, this one didn't exist, but I'm saying, you know, places like that. Um, the, the books that were written by the people at the respectable ones then are in the library over at this one. Um, they were passed down. They wrote to explain why God blessed this system. And that when I talk about the gospel being torn in two, that's, that, that, that's what I'm talking about. And I mean, just one quick example. There's a guy named Thornton Stringfellow from up in Virginia. He was a Baptist preacher. He writes uh, um, one of the most popular defenses of slavery from the Baptist perspective in the um, 1830s, 1840s. And he says, um, uh, he says, not only is slavery justifiable because you can find it in the Old Testament, you know, Abraham had slaves. You can find that, you know, Paul doesn't say give up your slaves. So, that, you know, slavery is in the Bible, so slavery must be okay. People have been saying that for a while. He goes on to say uh, that in addition to being okay, slavery is actually a good. He says it's a good thing, not just a good for the people who are making money off of it. Thornton Stringfellow, the reference, Thornton, Thornton, he goes on to say slavery is a good because if the enslaved people had died in pagan Africa, they would have gone to hell. But because they had the good fortune to be brought to this land where they can hear the good news of the gospel, then their souls have the hope of eternal salvation. And furthermore, he says, there is the hope that one day they will return to Africa and bring the good news there. As if the Ethiopian eunuch <laughs> wasn't right there in the Bible that they read. 
right? Mm-hmm. But think about that for a second. You know, nobody's going to make that argument anymore. But think about how that understanding of the dramatic difference between someone's eternal destiny and the present state of their body, right, is still with us. That's at the heart of why the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Church today says that the primary mission of the church is to plant churches because churches save souls. And it echoes, you know, without the racial language anymore, it echoes the reasoning of what Thornton Stringfellow was saying 160 years ago. So, so that's wh- wh- when I think about the gospel being torn in two, that's, that, that's what I began to realize and learn about this faith that I had inherited and had taken very seriously. And, and, and you know, again, th- there was something there. Mm-hmm. There was something there that was good and true. And yet it had been so divorced from the fullness of what the gospel is about. And, uh, and that's, that's really why I wanted to write this book. I, I think there's deep healing that's needed. Uh, when we look around in our country, we can see that there, you know, there's deep healing in the kind of common life we have. That's been impacted by this slaveholder religion. There's deep healing that's needed in our churches. And I think down on the inside of us, there's, there's a formation work and spiritual healing that's needed. All, all that's impacted by this history. One of the things I highlighted uh, was it says, uh, you say, my soul cannot be well without the society that made it sick finding help. And I thought that was powerful. So when we look at society, especially today, we are so, so divided. I mean, it can almost be overwhelming as to how to even begin to start the healing process. Where do we begin? Where? Where do we begin? Well, what I want to say as a person who was, who grew up just implicitly being told by every system that I lived in, the church, the school, the community, my family system, I'm not even saying anybody was thinking about this. I was just raised to think of myself as white, mm-hmm. right? I think whiteness is a lie, <laughs> which means everybody who loved me was lying to me. Again, not intentionally, but that's what they had inherited, mm-hmm. and they were passing that on to me. And so in so many ways, for someone like myself, you know, who, who was raised under the illusion that I was white and that, and that somehow, you know, to grow into the fullness of manhood or being a full person or a grown person or whatever was to, you know, become the ideals of whiteness. Um, for me, the place to begin has been learn from black people. <laughs> I, and I think that's what I would say to the country. Listen to black people. <laughs> black people have been trying to reconstruct America from 1865, at least. And there were folks, you know, without any political power trying to do it before that. But I'm just saying, like, from the very beginning of black folks having 
a say in public life, there was a clear agenda for what that would mean. You can, you can see it in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Those are the Reconstruction Amendments, right? The, the abolition of the enslavement of other people, the guarantee of equal protection under the law for all people, and the guarantee of the right to vote. If anybody who, who has that wisdom knows that when somebody is trying to take away your right to vote, that's a spiritual problem. <laughs> that's, that's a whiteness problem. And uh, we're rife with it here in North Carolina. My goodness. The Supreme Court of the United States of America ruled that uh, on two counts, the legislature of this state has, uh, with racial intent, tried to suppress votes and gerrymander districts. That's not good. That's voter suppression. That's what we call that, voter suppression. But it's, it's the Supreme Court has said this twice. And what has the legislature done? They've said that this fall on your ballot, they want you to vote about whether the thing that the Supreme Court said was intentionally racist should be. So, so, so you're going to be asked, are you for or against a voter ID? Please say you're against it. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just doing a little public education here. But I'm using it as an example of the lies of whiteness, right? And that in so many ways, I, I guess I'm just saying um, I've learned to trust black folks. Trust the people who have somehow, some way, continued to believe in the possibility of a common life despite all that's happened, despite all the sin. We're in church. We should call it what it is. Despite all the sin, despite all the evil that has been done to black folks as a people, it's Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and you know Ella Baker and Martin King and Fannie Lou Hamer. These are the people who have fought for America. <laughs> if if you know if America is the possibility of a multi-ethnic democracy where we share life together, and in so many ways they're the people who have fought for beloved community. You know, if church is going to be something other than just you know getting together with your uh, uh, ethnic clan and, you know, having some sort of spiritual nourishment to keep you going. Um, if it's going to be something more than that, I think we're going to have to learn from, you know, the folks who learn to say, I will trust in the Lord. <laughs> I, I will stay on the battlefield. This is a struggle. This is not going to be easy. But I'm going to treat everybody right because Jesus said, Blessed are you when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward. I'm going to show you a better way. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Build your house on the solid rock, not on the sand. You, I mean, Jesus is teaching us a way to be in the world, and it doesn't look much like the American way. And if we're going to actually learn to live it, I think we need to learn from the people who've like had to flesh that out. Uh, and have some skin in the game. So, yeah, that's what well, you a place to begin. Yeah, a yeah, place to begin. Yeah. Well, you just said a mouthful there. Um, 
And um, on that point, when you say listen to black folk, you about ready to be stoned in this, uh, <laughs> in this, in, in, I'm not saying in this environment. <laughs> Let me do a survey. Uh, but <laughs> when you stand up and say that, that, yeah, that's powerful, you know, um, because that might cause some books to get burned or some other things. Yeah. Nike tennis shoes yeah. this, week. <laughs> this week, this week. <laughs> but that's, I mean, how it, it takes, it's going to take someone like you to say that. Um, for me to go out and say, listen to black people, you know, that doesn't go very far. Um, so I guess that leads into uh, your chapter on racial blindness. How do you get people to see, not that if I were to say it, I'm threatening or I'm uh, all just pro-black or black lives matter and, you know, I, I don't love white people. Uh, you know, it brings about all of those emotions yeah. from someone who's not ready to see versus, yeah. you know, they might throw a few less rocks at you. Yeah. Uh, in that moment. Yeah. You know, I think whether we're talking about life in the church or life in the public square, um, what whiteness uh, often suggests is a kind of is a kind of a civility and respectability uh, that makes white people feel like things are under control. That's how white people always want to proceed. You know, we got some, we got some real mess. Now, you know, let's just not, get, let's just not get, it, let it get out of control. Um, which means, you know, the white folks need to uh, feel like that they can move forward when they're comfortable moving forward. Um, it's like, you know, like the letter that. Uh, that Martin King got from the ministers down there in Birmingham. Uh, you know, I know they, they have you read the, they have you read the letter from the Birmingham jail in school. Um, but in church, we really should read, especially in, you know, churches that, uh, that look so white. We should read the letter that the very white ministers of Birmingham sent to uh, Martin King. Because it's a great example. It's readily available. You can find it. I quoted some in the book, too. But it's a, it's, it's a great example of what white people always do, which is say, well, of course there's, you know, you're making an important point. That of course there's a real injustice here. But, you know, we have to consider the broader picture and, you know, that these things are it's going to take time and it can't happen overnight. And, you know, so that still happens all the time, right? And, um, well, what we, what we can do, what each of us can do, wherever we are, you know, in our neighborhoods, in our families, on our jobs, um, we can say, wait a second, who is being hurt by this, by this issue? You know, I mean, we brought up the Nikes, mm -hmm. right? Th this is a conversation that's happening in mm -hmm. our country. 
uh, let's just say, wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not going to have a conversation with anybody. I don't care if you've served in the military or not. I'm not going to have a conversation with anybody about respecting the flag until we talk about who's being hurt. Brother Colin Kaepernick knelt down. He's very clear. He said he's kneeling down because people are being killed by the police. Brother was in his own apartment down in Dallas, Texas. Police officer, come, I, I still don't understand the story. It doesn't make sense to me. But coming off a 12-hour shift, walks into the wrong apartment, shoots the man dead. Uh, maybe that is an honest accident. But we have video after video after video now of people running away, sitting in a car, whatever the case. What black people have been saying forever, which is law enforcement doesn't treat us the same way it treats you. This is not a new assertion. But what is new is that there's cell phones now. What black folk have been saying forever is now on tape. We've seen it. Walter Scott, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland. I mean, you, you know the names. We've seen it over and over and over again. Trust black people. That's th I, I think that's the, that's the place to start, right? So again, whether it's in your family, in your church, at your workplace, who, who is crying out in this space, in our community, right? We're right here in Lakewood, right? Who is saying, I'm being hurt? Not just, not just like the chair's on my toe, could you move it? But that it's like systemically, I'm being hurt. Brother Samuel, he's right down the street. He's in the church. He's being hurt by systemic racism. I don't care why people voted for Donald Trump, economic anxiety or, the, you know, hope, hope for uh, whatever. The fact of the matter is zero tolerance immigration enforcement means brown people are being separated from their families, not just at the border, but right here in our community. This brother's had to take shelter in a church in the hope that he won't be shipped off to, to never return to his family. That's right here in your neighborhood, right over in my neighborhood. It's Pastor Jose, same situation, right? So, so trust those people. I think, that's the, I think that's the core lesson here. Learn from them what we need to do to become a community that really is for everyone. And that, uh, I think, is a kind of posture that we can begin to assume wherever we are. Um, I have a couple things highlighted in the area where you say you have to want to see. Mm. And I just love how you um, brought the story forth of uh, uh, the two blind men, um, Bartimaeus, and, and the sin. Is, it says sin is a kind of blindness. Mm -hmm. Can you just work with that scripture? For me, I think share that, please. Yeah. Well, part of what I'm trying to say in in how so every if you read this book, every chapter ends with a a reading of scripture, mm -hmm. um, because a large part of what I want to say is that once you begin to listen to people who've experienced the world very differently, you realize that reading the Bible with them is to hear this, the Bible stories differently, right? And it's to begin to see that 
over and over, Jesus is, Jesus is directly diagnosing and uh, offering prescriptions for precisely the malady that we have. This, um, uh, I mean, did, this is the gospel in our context. I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not making a claim that, um, that American racism was what Jesus was talking about in first century Palestine. I'm talking about American racism is what Jesus is addressing in the 21st century in Durham. <laughs> this, is a, this is rooted in a conviction that this is, uh, as the Bible says, a living and active word, uh, sharper than edgy, any two-edged sword. I had a, years ago, I had a young man in Bible study who, uh, you know how young folks do, he sat back like this. He was smart. He was a smart guy. He'd been in my Bible study for a while. Uh, he said, uh, we read this story before. I said, I know we've read this story before. Well, I already know it, he said. <laughs> I said, you think this book is like the books you read at school? I said, you read it at school, you pass the test, you know it. I said, that's not how we read this book. We believe this book is alive. <laughs> Which means it could say something to you today that it didn't say last time. God wants to speak to you. And he said, huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I read Bartimaeus now, and I think, you know, Mark does this thing where he frames a whole section of Jesus' teaching between the healing of two blind men. And, um, and uh, Bartimaeus is on the back end of that, right? So Jesus has been trying to open our eyes to see what's really happening and to see that, like, the problem is not just out there. We're caught up in what's happening, right? I think that's central to almost everything Jesus teaches. That, like, because, I mean, we get so caught up in these stories that we're told. They're not the Bible story, but we, there are other stories we're told, right? That, I mean, the, st the whole st story of, nostalgia in this country is incredibly powerful, you know, that there was some better day in the past that if we can just get back to, everything's going to be all right. Like, so if, you, if you're caught up in that story, then it's very easy to point fingers, you know. I mean, it's, if you're caught up in that story, then you say, oh, Samuel over there, he's the problem. If we can just get those, you know, illegals out of here, then everything's going to be all right. That's kind of the story that most people who think of themselves as conservative are caught up in in this country right now. But that's not the only story. I mean, there's also, there's also a very liberal story that's equally blinding, I think, uh, that says, you know, uh, America's always been great. We're a great country. It's great, you know, great and getting greater. And uh, uh, the, the real problem is, you know, this person or that person. So, you know, if you're talking about police brutality, it's the bad apples. And if you're talking about, you know, national politics, it's the president, whatever, like, you know, if we can get rid of that person, then we're going to get back to our greatness, which is really who we are. <laughs> Jesus says, no, no, the problem is that the world is subject to the frustration of principalities and powers that have taken what's good and twisted it. And you're caught up in that. And I am too. And unless we can heal, 
unless we can be redeemed, unless we can be knit back together into something new, uh, there's no hope. But after this teaching section in Mark, he comes to Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus says, um, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want? And he says, I want to see. <laughs> and Jesus basically says, that's enough, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this pointing to the desire to be free from what binds us, uh, what blinds us in this case, but what binds us as people, as a people, is, um, is central to what the Bible's teaching. And it, it reminds me of that prayer that Thomas Merton prayed where he said, you know, Lord, I don't know where I'm going, and I, I don't even really know if, um, if where I'm trying to go pleases you, but I believe that my desire to please you pleases you, and so I pray that you would grow that desire in me and that you would move me you know, further to, to um, where you want me to be. I think that's an honest prayer. I think that's the prayer that, you know, that Jesus is calling for there. Do you, wa do you want to see... Uh, too much, too much of our life in America has been and is about refusing to see. Mm. And so I think, uh, yeah, anything that cultivates that desire is good news. Mm -hmm. We, uh, this is good. Thank you. Thank you for this. It's a good conversation. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about everybody here and really wanting to draw you all into the conversation. I, and I'm also mm -hmm. realizing that I. Uh, yeah, we, we, I think we're. Yeah, yeah. Can we can, can we invite folks yeah, into yeah, this? Yeah. yeah. yeah cause what I does this stir? I stay here all evening. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. What does this stir in you? What do you want? Why did you come over here tonight when you could be watching TV? Yes. Um, so I was raised in a very white evangelical church, which yeah. you know because you actually uh, preach at the church that I was raised in every summer. Yeah. At, at the end of Sunday where. Good to see you here in Durham. Yeah. Um, so at this church, there's uh, it's it's all white because it's at the beach in North Carolina, um, and then also across the street from the church, there's a house that flies a Confederate flag very proudly, just ten feet away from the church, and you know. Yes, indeed. there's a, yeah, some white people treat other people of color very unfairly, so the next time that 
but it's like, well, what are you going to interact with a person of color if you don't work with them or live with them or go to church with them? So I feel like the kind of conversation I want to be having is um, is about voting choices, mm-hmm. and it's about having hard conversations with other white people. Yeah. But I don't think that the folks that I'm talking with, the people that I loved and who raised me, see it from that perspective because they that's not really they have a very thank you you're you're grappling with this and one of the things that makes me think of is uh you know the uh, swiss theologian carl bart says uh, we only know sin on the way out um, which is to say in some ways <laughs> in some ways you can never convince someone uh of their sin sin is blindness right there's a certain kind of stuckness right you can't see it um, so I suspect this isn't only true of the very difficult conversations that you're having, but of kind of all of us, right? What we're caught up in. Um, yeah, I, I think especially in the white evangelical world, it's incredibly important to find concrete ways to help people learn to see how the systemic impacts individuals. Right, like I, I spend a lot of time these days personally introducing people to folks who are living in sanctuary, because I, I, I was like, I, I just want to say, look, you did. I, I don't think you voted for Donald Trump because you wanted this man to be separated from his family. I don't believe that's true, right? I know enough people who voted for Donald Trump that, like, whatever else is going on. It was not hatred for Jose as a person that made them vote for Donald Trump. So I want them to listen to Jose, right? I want to, I, I want to say, look, I, this may not have been your intent, but this is the reality, right? If, if you believe in a policy that says we're going to have zero tolerance for violation of the current immigration law as it exists when you know that there are at least 11 million people who are in violation of the immigration law as it currently exists, then what you have to know is that that means life is going to be radically interrupted for those 11 million people, right? And so in what ways can we help people to see that, you know, this is, this is not about whether you're nice to the person who bags your groceries, White people have always been nice to the people who bag their groceries as long as they said, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, right? Because racism, systemic racism, has never been about hatred, right? The Klan is hateful, publicly hateful. The N-word is hateful, right? So if you go back and look, actually, white supremacists, we're always uncomfortable with that. The Klan was always a last resort. The Civil War was a last resort. 
for decades, respectable senators from North Carolina and other southern states went up and very politely addressed the other people in the Senate, you know, always calling them gentlemen and sir and blah, 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 to defend our way of life, they always called it. Because it was never about hate, it was about control. It was about wanting to maintain not only something that benefited them, but something that, was, that became so normal that no one could imagine an alternative to it, right? What, what would a plantation even look like if the enslaved people didn't do the work? Pe white people could not imagine that. Now, black folk could. Black folk could tell you. <laughs> we know how all this stuff works. <laughs> We'd be just fine without them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we run this place. <laughs> give, give it to us. We can run it. We do the work. Black folks always, but white people couldn't imagine that. So, yeah, I, I guess I'd just really affirm that the kinds of conversations you're trying to have are what's desperately needed. And I think as practical and direct as we can be about how these things hit the ground for real people um, is the kind of, that's the kind of conversation we got to be having. And, uh, and having it with the people we know and uh, people we love and people who don't want to hear it, um, but who might hear it because, you know, they've been listening to you all your life. <laughs> they've been listening to me all my life. Yeah. I, 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 we, we can go to somebody else, but I'll just real quickly Go say, uh, really, raise your hand. I, I, I don't want to cut anybody off, but... Um, but I wrote this book because, I tell the story in the book, um, I wrote it because my grandfather was sitting across the Easter dinner table from my son, who is African American, he, he's adopted, uh, the spring that Donald Trump was running for the Republican nomination. And they had a very short exchange uh, in which my son said that he had gathered that uh, his great-grandfather was going to vote for Donald Trump. And he said, really? And my grandfather said, well, you know, uh, sometimes politicians say things they don't really mean, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he said, but, Pa, he's extreme. And, you know, he's just thinking about, like, everything he had already said about, like, you know, Mexicans are rapists. <laughs> like, that was in the opening speech, I think. And he had heard that. And, like, you know, he goes to school with all kinds of folks from Mexico, his friends, you know, play soccer with folks. And it just doesn't, like, none of it makes sense to his experience, right? All this talk about immigrants, like his best friend is an immigrant from Liberia, and it doesn't compute with his experience. Uh, so there was that, you know, divide. It's there. But what was clear to me in that conversation was that, like, neither one of them could imagine where the other one was coming from. Like, it was just this sort of just... I mean, dumbfoundness just ended in silence. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, like that, they know one another, they love one another. There's, you know, th it wasn't an argument. It was an inability to see where the other one was coming from. And that's, that's really why I wrote the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Any questions? Anybody? Oh, I think I saw you first. Uh, Blue? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I was just wondering, um, 
Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I would say, uh, if you haven't heard about this, there are some uh, exclusively male and overwhelming, overwhelmingly white <laughs> pastors who have put out a statement against social justice, in which they argue that, more or less. Um, any effort to root racial justice or other kinds of public justice in the gospel uh, cheapens or waters down the gospel. That's basically their point. And uh, I'll say two things. One, that is slaveholder religion. That's like that's specifically what I'm writing about in the book. It has a history. <laughs> it has a history. You can read about it. Uh, they're not the first people to say that. But the second thing I'll say is that it's actually encouraging to me that they feel like they need to make that statement. Because what that means is that I'm looking around this room and a lot of y'all are like younger than the average crowd you find in a church, which is great. And uh, most of these guys are old. And what they're seeing is that people like you don't buy what they've been saying for the last 40 years. You know, the religious right was a partnership between uh, mostly white conservative preachers who agreed to narrow the focus of, you know, morality in the public square to a few little things uh, where you stand on abortion and, uh, you know, the sort of traditional family values, you know, roles that people play in relationships and such. And, uh, and that's kind of, you know, that, that's kind of all they've had to sort of stand for or talk about. And, um, and they've essentially, um, the, the, the agreement was that, um, that the Republican Party would be with them on that so long as they went with them on anything that the corporations wanted, right? So, you know, uh, rape and pillage the earth, uh, you know, extract the oil, burn it, you know, deregulate, uh, abuse workers, you know, get as much as you can out of people, deport the immigrants, like, one thing after another, that those aren't moral issues, right? The, the preachers have had nothing to say about that. They've just all consistently said, you know, if you're pro-life, you're a Christian politician. And that a whole bunch of those people who've sort of been comfortable in that now feel like they need to, like, defend and define this as if this isn't what they've been saying all along, I think is because they see that people aren't buying that. And uh, that's encouraging to me. So I, s I'm, yeah. I saw a hand over here and one there and then over here. Um, I, I'm, I work for InterVarsity and one of my one of the things we've noticed is that um, in the area I've worked in, our, as our student groups have become more diverse, we've lost white people, so we're more diverse, we're talking about race openly, and so in this last year, um, any area-wide things that we've had have been almost exclusively students of color. Um, and I'm finding myself torn between I'm feeling called to white students, to white church. That's what I, that's what my role is now is helping invite white students into this conversation. But I keep finding myself torn between saying there there's no hope. <laughs> I, I I feel like you the um, my my family also is very white evangelical Republican party. Um, I I feel like I want to say to them, you are not following Jesus. Like I, I have this 
listen to native, you know, native Christians and black Christians and Latino Christians and forget white people. Um, and then I, but I also love my family. I love these white students, and I, so I'm just myself torn between these things and wondering how you have you lived lived that out. Like, what does that look like? I am a member of an historically black church because that's the only way I could stay Baptist. So there's that. I would not be a member of a Southern Baptist church. I would not raise my children in a Southern Baptist church. Um, so I'll be honest about that. And um, I, as much as I can, stay engaged with the dear souls down at Topsail and any other Southern Baptist church that will have me and Methodist churches and others around the South because I believe if we, um, if we cede the gospel in the church or in public to, um, you know, the kind of people who would happily sign the statement you mentioned, um, We, I think we run the risk of having everyone believe that that's what Christianity is, right? So I try to be very clear that I am an evangelical because I believe in what the Bible calls an evangel, good news. And I believe the good news that black folks heard on plantations here in the south when they heard about a god who you know had raised israel out of egypt before that same god raised jesus from the dead and that god was going to you know swing low in a sweet chariot and bring us carry us home and that that was good news uh, i want when, when when people hear christian or bible in society i don't want them to just think of Jerry Falwell. I want them to think of, so, so, you know, people say, are you a Baptist? Yes, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Fannie Lou Hamer Baptist. A Martin King Baptist. You know, like, I, 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 I want to reclaim this language. So, so, um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm saying that I think people have to make choices about what they are able to do and sustain, which I have done, and I don't want to just give up on um, institutions and labels that I think actually, in truth, should mean and do very different things. Yeah. There was somebody in the back that had a question. Yeah, it was me, but. Uh, okay. Would you like to come up? Yeah. No. Good to see you, brother. Good to see you, sir. Uh, I'm Charlie. I'm from another country. I'm listening to this American talking about the gospel. Um, that is spread uh, all over the world. Yes. So, uh, one, uh, issue that I want to think about, how do we talk about Jesus uh, at the table? Like, we are talking about. Yeah. But how do we introduce a new Jesus then? 
in the public square. It demos it because Christianity is a public place, like in front of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what you are wrestling with. So show us in the public how do we demonstrate this uh, new uh, gospel that you're bringing to us. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I um, I want my kids to know Jesus and to know the power of Jesus' way in the world. And I think telling them the story is incredibly important. We do it, you know, at morning prayer and we do it at bedtime prayers and we do it by participating in a local church and you know, memorizing Bible verses and all that stuff. I believe that's good. But I think the kind of table that we host in our homes is crucial in terms of what children see that the family that they're part of, not because they're our biological children, but because we've all been adopted by God. What, you know, what, what does that look like? Who's at your table? So, we try hard to have a table that our kids share with, you know, all God's people, the neighbors in Durham, people coming home from prison, folks who've been, you know, harassed and rounded up by ICE, uh, folks in the movement who are working for justice, Black Lives Matter activists. You know, we, 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 we're going to be there together, and we're going to sing the songs that the folks who've been uh, walking with Jesus toward freedom in the history of this place have sung. Um, so that's that's what we that's what we do in the evening. We circle up, we sing, "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot." That's my youngest son Nathan's favorite song. So we often sing that one right now, "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot," and, and and try to have that table. So I think that's crucial. The second question you asked is about where can we join this in the public square. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention to you all the Poor People's Campaign, which is an incredibly important movement that's happening right now. It's a moral movement. It's rooted in our experience here in North Carolina, but it's all over the country. So I'd encourage you to learn more about it, poorpeoplescampaign.org, and uh, plug in, get involved. If you, if you register your email at the webpage, you'll get information about how you can be involved right here in North Carolina. So that's a very concrete thing, but I'll just say quickly, what I've learned from that moral movement that my mentor for years now, Reverend Barber, has really been the architect of and that I write about some in the book, um, is that in so many ways, if we begin to follow Jesus in this way of building beloved community across all these dividing lines in the public square, what we often find in this context is that the people who are doing that work um, are as often not coming from the church as they are. And so I would just say to church folks, that's fine. <laughs> God is <laughs> at work through all sorts of people who won't step in a church in the United States because of all the mess that the church has done. And we got to respect that. We got to respect that people have good reason not to come to church. And that, um, as a matter of fact, that... Um, you know, the, the most important thing Jesus says in his uh, opening sermon, his inaugural sermon, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor. 
I think the most important thing he says in that sermon for Christians, for people who are in the church, is what he says at the end of the sermon, what almost gets him killed, which is he tells two stories to close that sermon about people in the history of Israel who were not insiders but were outsiders who trusted God and got it when the uh, insiders didn't. He talks about uh, the widow at Zarephath and the uh, uh, Syrian Naaman who came and dipped himself in the water to be healed. And he says, those folks got it even when you didn't get it. God gave it to you, but you didn't get it, so somebody else had to come in and show you. And it says they almost threw him off the cliff that day. That's the end of that story. But I think, my goodness, if that's, if that's how Jesus brought it home in his first sermon, like we need to be ready to see that God is not always just, you know, right in here, you know, revealing God's self to us from the, you know, wise words of the people sitting up here <laughs> so that we can take it out into the world. No, no, God is out in the world doing stuff, <laughs> showing up all over the place. And if what we do in here, you know, does a little bit to help you see it, that's great. But let's join it wherever it's happening, right? And, and, and so, um, yeah, I think that's, that's crucial. There's, um, there's all kinds of things happening that are deeply encouraging uh, in terms of, you know, a sanctuary movement to stand with people who are being separated from their families. Uh, uh, the, the, the movement for black lives, the movement right here in Durham to, to really transform our criminal justice system. Um, we've got a, you know, new DA and a new sheriff that have, have come out of that. And, and now we have to figure out, like, what that actually means. That's huge. You know, how, how can... How can we have restorative justice instead of retributive justice in terms of how we address real harms in our community? That's something that's happening here right now. So all of these things, I think, are, are places where God is showing up and where we can join what God is doing in the world. One last question. And then the churros <laughs> and, and the cafe.
I think that's a great word to end on. Um, the work that you're doing, I think, is the work that we need to be doing. And it's deeply personal work, right? So, you know, finding the resources to address your your personal stuff where you are on the journey is incredibly important. But it's also work we do in community, right? So I hope that this book and this conversation in some way uh, helps us see our need for that work and uh, that we can commit to doing it together as we go from here. Thank you. It's good to be with Thank you this evening. Let's give Jonathan.